Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, you, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's true word. In our music and in our prayers, we've, we endeavor, and in our planning, we endeavor to prepare you for this passage uh, that Peter gives us in his remarkable letter written decades after Jesus of Nazareth changed his life and commissioned him as an apostle. Um, you know, uh, this is a difficult passage uh, for a lot of people, and, and, and not just for Americans, but in, in various places in societies, Peter, in a very gentle way, says some very difficult things. And this is a safe place to, uh, to deal with difficult things. And, you know, sometimes I open, I open the, uh, the, the discussion up, actually, literally open it up and ask you for, for your thoughts. And I'm going to do that right at the beginning today. I'm going to ask you a challenging question. But I want you to know, this is, a, as many of you know, because when you're here every week, this is a safe place uh, to share our thoughts with one another. It's even a safe place to disagree. And so let me begin. This is a political year. It's a big year in America. It's, it's a big election cycle. And so as you watch and listen to media, as you have conversations with one another, as you follow Twitter and Facebook, as you read the newspaper, or articles online, the rhetoric, the rhetoric is intensifying, right? The, the careless, mean-spirited rhetoric is intensifying. We rub off on one another. Uh, it rubs off on us. Now, in, in political discussions, in political arguments, one of the things I often hear people argue about from a religious perspective and from a cultural perspective, is whether or not America is a Christian nation. Have you heard people say America is a Christian nation? 
or no, it is not. That's the question I want to ask you. Is America a Christian nation? And I want to know what you think and why you think that way. If it is, why? If it's not, why? And if you don't want to admit that you think it, you can say, well, I once heard somebody say, and you can just act like you're quoting somebody else that, that talked to you. What do you think when, when you hear that concept? You know, is, is America, quote unquote, a Christian nation? What, what do you think about that? Yeah, in the back. I'll bite. Okay, thank you. Thanks for biting first. So you would say no. Any other thoughts? Uh, wait, how about right here? I would say yes. Yes. I would say as a nation, there are more Christians in this nation than any other. Therefore, the thoughts and the beliefs that are coming out of our government, most of it is Christian-based, at least in their belief system. How it portrays and comes out from them may be different. I believe because most of our people are Christians that, for the most part, those people are trying to live by their faith. And, yes, that would make it a Christian nation based on the people's belief and not necessarily the way the government's run. Okay, so different answer, yes. And, and actually for different reasons. Uh, some people talk about legislation and what's in the founding documents and would say no. Other people say, well, based on the majority... Of, of belief, uh, the, the majority worldview, yes. And, and actually, people can say yes or no and use the same reasons to say yes or no. Uh, I felt, feel like I saw a hand over here. Yeah. So there's complexity to it. Um, we are not a theocracy as when you read the Old Testament in the Bible, Israel was a theocracy. God was Israel's king. Um, uh, Amer but when you look at America's founding documents, there, there seems to be some type of Christian or, or Judeo-Christian influence in the founding documents. Uh, and then Jack made a very interesting comment. He said, would Jesus Christ want his name on the nation, or any nation for that matter, whether it's China or, um, or Turkey. Uh, maybe one or two more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jack does bring up a good point about the founding um, generations. Uh, many of them were devout Christians, but I think just as strong an influence in the, the founding generation was the influence of the Enlightenment, which was 
not a Christian-based movement in, in Western European culture that you're part of. Um, and many, while there are certainly some Christian ideas in the Italian Vatican, there are probably as many Enlightenment ideas than the, you know, the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, some of those are Christian, but the pursuit of happiness, that's not really a Christian doctrine. Okay, so... So along with uh, a Christian influence upon the founding fathers of our society, there was also a secular influence. Uh, The Enlightenment was a secular movement in in Western culture in the 1600s and the 1700s. And the Enlightenment is just as responsible for American, early American thought as Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, So in, in, in some sense... Uh, our answers are very cut and dry, yes and no. In, in another sense, your answers were, uh, were nuanced. It, it's a very challenging, it's a challenging topic. And it, it, it incites a lot of disagreement and a lot of passion in our society, especially at this time in our nation's history. You, you actually have um, various... America is now in a place, our society in the United States is now in a place that, that really culture has never been in for thousands of years. The idea that the only one truth is that there is no truth. Uh, that's a new concept even, even for, for Western people. And, and that's where we're, we are right now. Thank you. You were all very brave and gracious. I appreciate how you handled that if, if we could handle our conversations like that outside the room, that would be that, that would be wonderful. Let me let me offer two two dangers. Uh, respectfully, let me offer two two perspectives of danger regarding uh, the concept that America is a Christian nation. There's a danger to saying that from a historical perspective. If if religious freedom, and primarily Judeo-Christian religious freedom, was America's mother, economic profit and imperialism was its father. You see both of those concepts in the very beginning of American society. And I don't mean 1776, I mean 1492, um, the 1500s, the 1600s as well. More importantly... This is, there's a biblical danger in saying uh, that America, or any nation for that matter, a political entity, is a Christian nation. And here's, here's the biblical danger behind it. Peter has been saying in his letter again and again that if you are a Christian, you are in exile. If you are a Christian, you are a refugee living in this world. You are a sojourner. That the world is not your home. Furthermore, Jesus, as he stood before Pilate the governor, and Pilate had the political authority to execute Jesus, and Pilate was trying to get Jesus to answer this question, are you a king or not? And Jesus said to him in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. So with respect to our differences of opinion, I would say we are asking the wrong question. I would rather suggest that if you're a Christian, this is a good question. 
what is the Christian response to living in America now? As citizens of our temporary country and heirs of God's eternal kingdom, how should Christians live in the United States? How should we live in a big political year? How should we think of our society and our place in it now and into the future? And to really understand this, we have to realize that there's a relationship between freedom and submission. They're related. Respect for all authority is the mark of a free soul. I hope you're going to see that in Peter's words today. That God has a purpose for Christian submission. When Peter says, hey, if you're a Christian, you should submit to all authority that's instituted by human beings. God has a purpose for that submission. And there's also a means by which the Christian can submit in a productive way. And then finally, there is a power. There is a power that God offers when the Christian submits to the authorities. So today I want to talk about the purpose of submission, the means of submission, and the power of submission. Now, the purpose of submission from a Christian perspective is to highlight the glory of God's salvation. When you look through the New Testament, it is overwhelmingly clear, whether it's Peter or whether it's the Apostle Paul or whether it's some of the things that Jesus himself said. It's overwhelmingly clear that in an increasingly hostile Greco-Roman culture that was becoming increasingly hostile to this alien worldview called Christianity in the first and second and third century. What you see in the New Testament again and again is honor all authority. Of course, inside the church, but, but, but just as importantly, outside of the church, in the world, honor all authority. Peter says, honor the emperor. You know who was likely the emperor when Peter was writing this letter? It was probably Nero. Nero was notoriously ruthless. During Nero's time, Christians were persecuted en masse in Rome. They were blamed for something, and many of them were executed in quite a flamboyant way. Historical tradition says that Peter, the, the apostles Peter and Paul were probably executed under Nero's rule in, reign, in, uh, in Rome. Peter also mentions the governors. Pilate was a governor. Felix and Festus, these, these are men mentioned in the book of Acts. Who uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, stood on trial before these men. Felix and Festus, they were governors. And Peter is saying, uh, these are people to whom you should respect and submit, and you should honor them. Now, why? Why would Peter say honor even ruthless authorities? Two reasons. He gives two reasons, and the first is this, that for the Christian, honoring the authorities strengthens your witness. He says this to all Christians in verse 15. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter is seeing you as exile ambassadors. If you're a Christian, God is your heavenly father. Jesus is your Lord. And you, while you're in exile on this earth and in this life, you are God's ambassador. You wear the family name. And in the world, you are to act like you belong to this new family. God's your adopted loving father. 
And so Peter says, you're an exile ambassador and respectful living dispels negative stereotypes. If Peter were living today, what he would be, the way he would be saying this is, by honorable living in every type of relationship in the world, you can dispel the impressions that the media and Hollywood portray in their movies and in their dialogues about Christians in America. You can d- dispel what they say. You can dispel the, the garden variety Christian in every Hollywood movie. You, you know how the movies portray uh, religious people, right? You can dispel those stereotypes by honorable, respectful living in every one of your relationships with, with your employer, with your principal, your teacher, even with your elect, especially with your elected officials. There's another reason, Peter says, okay, not only does honorable respect toward your authority strengthen your witness as a good apologetic, but it also encourages your sanctification. Sanctification simply means becoming like Jesus. That's what being a Christian is all about. By the power of God, you are becoming like Jesus and his son. That's sanctification. Peter says, he moves on. He doesn't talk about Christians in general. Now he talks about Christians who are, economically speaking, in a slave relationship. He's talking to Christians who are slaves. And he says to them, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, what are they called to? Are they called to slavery? Is that, what he's, is that what he's saying? Are they called to persecution? It's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying the Christian, regardless of his or her circumstance, the Christian is called to endure injustice like Jesus did. Regardless of the circumstance, the Christian is called to endure injustice by submitting to the same authorities that Jesus submitted to. Peter is asking Christians to honor the emperor and to honor their governors. It's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is asking Christians in a very difficult situation where they're finding themselves oppressed as slaves by their masters who have almost absolute authority over them. He says, you are called, regardless of your circumstance, to endure justice just as your Lord Jesus endured injustice inflicted upon him. Carol Ruvalo says this. She wrote a really good commentary on First and Second Peter. She said, when Christians patiently endure the sorrows of this life, they reveal the beauty of their living hope. Now, that, that phrase, living hope, goes all the way back to the beginning of Peter's letter. He says, You've been, God's caused you to be born again into a living hope. You have real hope that your future... And your identity isn't based on what you see now. It's based on what God is keeping in heaven for you until his son Jesus comes back to restore justice and to restore the planet. So respectful, a respectful posture in the political arena, in the with matters of government, in economy, you and your employer or you and your patrons or you and your employees in the social constructs, in, in family, in every, and we're going to get to social constructs and family next week as we look at family and we look at marriage. But in politics, in economy, in, in the social arena, and in family, Peter is saying, be respectful. Honor every human relationship. 
And, and this is how we let our light shine. Remember, Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. And Peter just said earlier on in chapter two, the, almost the same thing. By your honorable living for Jesus, you can shine your light in a dark world. This is, this is how we do it. This is how we shine our light in every relationship, living honorably, treating other people honorably, especially those who are in authority over us. Even the nasty ones, Peter says, even those who are corrupt, even those who are unjust. Now, you may not like to hear this, but I got to tell you, this is, it's remarkable what you're hearing Peter say, because these words are coming from a man who saw the Roman machine crucify his friend Jesus. These words are coming from a man who was beaten by the Jewish Sanhedrin, his own countrymen, the religious authorities of his day. These words are coming from a man who watched the Sanhedrin persecute, imprison, and execute his friends, some of who were apostles also because of their faith. How could a man who saw such injustice, how could a man who endured such injustice say things like this? Honor those in authority, even the ones who are committing these injustices against you. Because Peter understood that the means of submission, the means, the way to the type of submission he's talking about is through freedom. But not just any kind of freedom. Through freedom from a Christian perspective. He says in verse 16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now in two places, he says it to Christians in general and he even says it to Christian slaves. He says, be subject to your authorities. Be subject to your masters. And th That word, to be subject, it's an important word. Because what it, it means to freely submit yourself. It's, it's not under compulsion. Peter is saying, subject yourself out of your free will. Willingly, voluntarily subject yourself to all of those who are in authority. And the reason I'm bringing that up is it's very important because it shows us that Peter believed he was writing to free people. Even if they were even if some of them were slaves, because the church was full of all types of people from all sorts of classes, ethnicities, and even social structures. There were even slaves in the church. And what he's saying to all of them is, you're free people. Peter believed they were free regardless of their situation. I got to say something about ancient slavery. It, it was different than American slavery. I would even argue it was not as horrendous and atrocious as American slavery. In the ancient Roman world, somebody could become a slave for various reasons. Slavery in the ancient world, wasn't, it wasn't because one people group or one race of people subjugated another race of people against their will. That wasn't the context here of slavery. You could become a slave because you were in debt, because you went personally bankrupt. You could, become a, you, could, you could become a slave in order to have the simple things like food and shelter if you could not provide for those by yourself and you would submit yourself to somebody else because working for them under their oversight was better than starving to death or being destitute. You could become a slave as a prisoner of war 
there were various reasons why, why slavery existed. Peter isn't saying any of it is good. But Peter is saying if you find yourself in that situation as a Christian, you're still free. See, like American slavery, the ancients believed that slaves were still property. They didn't believe that slaves were fully human. They didn't believe that slaves had the rights of citizens, of free people. But the Bible, thousands of years ahead of its time, would say, no, that's not true. The Apostle Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And he goes on to say at the end of the passage, he says, Jesus is the shepherd and overseeing, I'm sorry, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus is saying two things, regardless of your situation in life, as a Christian, you are a free person. You are under Jesus's lordship. You are under his authority and you are under his loving care because he describes Jesus not simply as an overseer, as a judge. He says he's your shepherd. He guides you and takes care of you in difficult situations. So whether you're a free Roman citizen, Peter is saying, or, or whether you are a subjugated non-Roman citizen with less rights, or whether you are a slave with virtually no rights, you are all free. Why? Because in Christ, you are heirs of God's kingdom. In Christ, you all have the same living hope that is kept in heaven for you. Until Jesus returns. So regardless of your situation now. Your inheritance is the same. And so you are free because of who you are. Now you may be asking. Is it never appropriate to defy authority? Is it never appropriate to seek justice against oppression? That's not what Peter's saying. Sometimes respectful rebellion, sometimes conscientious objection is necessary. But here's the catch. It's necessary when obeying the authorities would cause you to disobey your Lord. When obeying authority would directly cause you to break your conscience and defy God. Now you have a problem. Peter and, John, Peter and his friend John, the other apostle, they disobeyed the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. They directly disobeyed their authorities. The reason was the authorities told them, stop talking about Jesus in public. We don't want you using that name. We don't want you talking about that man. And they said, look, you got to judge for yourselves, we, you know, whether we're going to obey God who told us to speak about Jesus or whether we're going to obey you in this situation. And they were beaten for that and they were imprisoned for that. But normally the New Testament rule is honor everybody who's in authority. What's never appropriate is retaliation. What's never appropriate is vengeance. That's the, evil that, that, that's the evil that Peter's talking about when he says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't use your freedom as a Christian to be obnoxious. 
to be judgmental, to abuse authority that's been given to you. As a free person, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for your evil desires and your evil ways. Peter isn't outlawing your calling to seek justice for the poor and for the oppressed and for those who can't help themselves. He is outlawing vengeance for injustice committed against you. In any situation, whether it's the government or whether it's that person at work who's spreading bad rumors about you, and the result is you didn't get that promotion. So seek justice for others, but not vengeance for yourselves. And the reason is because Jesus didn't retaliate when he suffered. Jesus didn't retaliate when he was falsely accused, when he was beaten, and when he was tried And when he was scandalously and wrongly executed. When we refuse to submit. When in defiance. And what we think is strength and individuality. When when, when we refuse to submit to authorities in our lives. We are rejecting the way of our Lord Jesus. I hope you see that. That that the the way of Christianity is to follow in the steps of its founder who did not retaliate when he, w- when he suffered. He didn't retaliate. And that's what Peter is trying to get all Christians to see here. That's the reason for their honorable behavior, because it's how Jesus acted. Christian freedom regards the authorities with the same respect that Jesus did. When you think about your president, when you think about that elected official in your district, you didn't vote for, and you don't like what that person's doing. When you think about your boss and how your boss is mistreating you, you think about that person in your family, that person you, nobody else knows but you, that you've suffered because of that person. Peter is saying, treat these people with the same respect that Jesus treated his oppressors. That doesn't mean being a doormat, doesn't mean turning away from injustice, but it does mean treating everybody honorably. You know, a truly free person has the ability to submit. That's where the ability to submit comes from, from a Christian perspective. Only a truly free person has the ability in any relationship to submit. No one can submit. No one can submit who is himself or herself a slave. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about that. If you're uncomfortable with what Peter is saying, and and if you are, hey, you are in good company. I think we all should be uncomfortable with what we're hearing to some degree or another. But if you're uncomfortable with this, let me ask you a question. What's your definition of freedom? Ask yourself that this week. How do you define freedom? And where do you get that definition from? Who taught you that? Where'd you read it? Where'd you hear it? Where'd you experience it? Is freedom your rightful objection to authority? Especially corrupt authority? Or oppressive authority? Is that how you view freedom? Or is freedom your prerogative to define your identity however you wish? Is freedom your prerogative to dictate your own destiny? Or is freedom your ability to remain disentangled from commitments? 
or from relationships? Is freedom something that you should protect at all costs? The Bible says that when you want something and you're trying to protect something and hold on to something that is so important to you that you're willing to sin in order to protect it. And let me put that into in, in, Let me put it in another way. If something is so important, even freedom, if something is so important to you that you're willing to hurt other people in order to keep it, you're willing to defy your own conscience in order to keep it, then you actually have what the Bible calls an idol. An idol is simply a false god. It's something that drives you. It's, it's the thing that motivates you the most in life. And that thing is so important to you that you will hurt other people and ignore injustice in order to keep that one thing. And I think the, I think Americans, I think we are born and bred to lust after freedom. To make freedom the most important thing in our lives and in our society. Something that is so important. That we will ignore injustice. That we will look down on other people. And we will hurt other people in order to keep it. I'm speaking personally. I'm not speaking politically. Or from a military perspective. Just personally. Is freedom so important to you. That you will hurt another person. To keep that freedom. I think the evidence. Of Americans. Uh, fascination. And preoccupation with freedom is our disrespectful tone towards one another in politics, in media, on Facebook. Read what people are saying on Facebook about politics right now. Read what people are saying about the candidate they don't like. Read what people are saying about people who would vote for the candidate that they don't like. That is where you see evidence of disrespect even hateful speech that litters our media, that litters Facebook profiles, and that we even see on some of our bumper stickers. And so people will say, oh, you're a fanatic. You, you would vote for that person? Or you would say such a thing? You're one of those fanatics. Regardless of whatever side of the aisle, you're one of those fanatics. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, by the way, that's a great book to read if you're looking at Christianity from the outside and you're going, what is this all about? I have all these objections, kind of like this whole idea of submission. The Reason for God is a great read. I, I would recommend it to you. But one of the things Tim Keller talks about is those fanatical religious types that, uh, uh, that the media likes to portray uh, that you even may be thinking about. You may say, well, that's why I don't go to church or that's why I stay away from Christianity or that's why I stay away from that type of, that type of Christian. I don't go to those types of churches um, or I don't, I'm not friends with that type of person. Uh, he says this, think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding like Jesus was. 
what strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel. Ask yourself this, does your desire for freedom, whatever the situation may be, does your desire for freedom exceed your desire for truth? Does your desire for freedom exceed your desire for justice and mercy? Does your longing to protect your freedom exceed your desire to love your neighbor? You know, once freedom rules you, you're no longer free. But the power, the power of submission, the power that the type of submission Peter describes offers you is life-giving. It is changing. The type of submission that Peter is describing actually liberates you. That's what's so ironic. You're trying to be free and hold on to our personal autonomy actually makes us more and more a slave. But the type of submission that Peter's talking about is what truly liberates you. I'm going to close with a couple of passages from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, this goes back to the heart of Peter's passage. This is the reason why Peter can say the difficult things he's saying. He says, Jesus committed no sin. Can you say that? You've endured injustice. You've been treated unfairly. Can you say you're perfect? Jesus was. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is what true freedom is. Whatever the textbooks say, whatever you were taught, whatever the pundits are, the pundits are saying, Peter says, this is true freedom. Jesus offers you freedom from your sin. That, your sin is a desire to be autonomous from your creator. Okay. The first attempt at misguided freedom was when Adam and Eve in the garden said, we don't need God. And that is how people left to their own devices understand freedom. It is continually moving away from the influence of a creator. But Jesus frees you from that slavery. Jesus frees you by his death from that, that type of desire to keep running from God, which enslaves you. Jesus also frees you from the guilt that it brings. Jesus not only frees you from the guilt of sin, but from the wrath that your guilty sentence deserves. And finally, Jesus frees you from the shame. It doesn't matter what people think about you if God loves you. Jesus frees you from fear. He frees you from the fear of what could happen to you if you submit. Because he's your overseer. He's your shepherd. He's going to protect your interests. And finally, he frees you from despair. From the danger of having nothing to live for, having no identity, having no purpose, but to just watch the world unravel before you. 
There is no unjust government. There is no biased employer or corrupt official or dominating, domineering parent. There is no abusive spouse. There is no bully who can rob you of what Peter says is your inheritance kept in heaven for you. That is the basis of true freedom. That nobody can touch who you truly are and what God is keeping in heaven for you. This salvation, this inheritance, this living hope. And so based upon that definition of freedom, the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, maybe around the same time, would say this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it concerns you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So respect for authority, for all authority, is actually the mark of a truly free soul. If Jesus could acknowledge that Caesar had a right to taxes. And if Jesus could submit himself to Pilate. To release you from the slavery you were in before God because of your sin. If Jesus could do all that, then surely we can respect our president. In how we talk about him. In how we leave comments on social media and our bumpers about him. In how we regard people who disagree with our social and political perspective. Surely we can respect our president and our employers. Even those who would do us harm. That's the mark of a truly free person. When you don't need to retaliate. When you don't need to inflict back, to criticize, to judge, because you know who you are and you know what is being kept in heaven for you and nothing can change that. So, just to repeat Peter's words as we end, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the president. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things for us to hear. We don't like being under authority, especially when we disagree. And even when we have been harmed by those who are in authority over us. Give us the kind of faith that Peter developed over his life. Where he could even say about the people who persecuted and oppressed and beat and imprisoned him to love them and respect their authority. Because in some way is an extension of your authority. Father, our big request is you would help us to stop running from you. Help us to to stop seeking autonomy from you. Help us to submit to you as our loving shepherd. And then to do likewise to those in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.